Last week, as we considered life in the Spirit, um, seems like I'm kind of moving week by week right now in terms of, uh, Lord, what do you want to say next? And, and as I reflected on last week's message, I, I felt that there were some things we needed to, to visit in a little more depth. It was kind of an overview and uh, a quick flyby for Romans 6, 7, and 8. Um, but the methodology of how God deals with us to bring us to, to life in the power of the Holy Spirit is something that is often uh, elusive to our understanding. And so I want us this morning to look at the areas that God seeks to bring under the control of his spirit and to look at how he goes about uh, doing that. Uh, I want to remind us that to be filled with the spirit means to be under his influence. And I I want to, perhaps I did not make this clear, and I want to, to just underscore that that act in Romans 6 of presenting ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness unto God is a decisive action that is not the same as the moment of salvation. Now, it may occur at the same time in some people. But most often it comes sometime later because we have to have a certain amount of trial and error before we realize uh, we need help. Some people confuse this with trusting Christ as Savior and then somewhere down the road making Him Lord. And I want us to be clear that coming to faith in Christ is trusting Him as Savior and Lord. Uh, You can't come to Jesus and say, I just want to go to heaven, but I'm not interested in anything else you have to say. That never happens. You have to come to Christ and trust him you have to put everything on the altar you have to believe that he's not only going to save you but that he's going to come into your life and he's going to begin to guide you as he does that uh, sooner or later we come to the realization that the christian life is a little tougher than we initially thought Uh, our initial experience of salvation is is often filled with joy and with uh, blessing and enthusiasm, and we feel so fresh and clean and right with God, and everything is wonderful, and and with all good intention, we set out to pursue Him and to follow Him. And so we want to do what's right. And as one person said, uh, rather popularly, I might add, in one of the key evangelistic methods, Our good works are a thank you to God for his salvation. Well, I'm sorry, but that doesn't work that way. Um, We don't have any good works. We don't have anything to offer. 
Unless God does it in us and through us, it's going to fall flat. And if we are uh, becoming aware of that, we realize we need the Holy Spirit to take over our lives. We need to get out of the driver's seat and let Him have control. That That is, in a sense, lordship, but it is not the same as the commitment of following Christ. It's coming to a place where we say, Lord, I've been trying. <laughs> I've been doing my best. I'm failing miserably. I'm not succeeding here. And uh, I'm ready to give you everything, lock, stock, and barrel. I'm willing to let you have my my will, my emotions, my mind. I'm willing to let you have my hands and eyes and feet and mouth and ears. I, I just want you to take over everything and, and live through me and control me because I'm not doing well <laughs> apart from this. And that's Romans 6. That's that commitment. It's a crisis. Some people call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people call it the filling of the Holy Spirit. Some people call it the crisis of sanctification. I don't care what you call it. But you have to recognize the need for it. And you have to be willing to come to that place where you take your hands off and you give yourself to God and invite Him to take over and to take control. So that we come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That gives Him permission to begin to, to possess us in the best sense of that word. He begins to take ownership of what we have invited Him to have. And that is all of our faculty and our members. And the other thing that we need to recognize, and this is where we get into the methodology this morning... We need to recognize that self-reliance is so deeply ingrained in us as a habit of living that it is nearly impossible to break. It requires an act of God over time that brings us to the end of ourselves where we have no confidence in the flesh. And that's hard because we are accustomed to being self reliant. We believe that even after this crisis moment, it's natural for us. Some people, for example, try to make a difference between spiritual things and, and, uh, ordinary living things and life things. And so they say, well, I need God to be uh, full of grace or I need God to be full of joy or I need the Lord to make me kind and gentle. But I can, uh, I can be a mechanic or an engineer or uh, an investment counselor on my own. I've been trained in that area. I know how to do that. I don't need God to help me with that. I have a degree in that. I, I'm, I'm equipped. And what we don't realize is, what God can do with that is so much more than what you can do with it. And, and if you continue to operate in those realms on your own, 
You may do a fine job, but what kind of impact are you having eternally in the lives of the people with whom you uh, have contact? What difference are you making? We're to be salt and light in the world. We're to bring Christ into every environment. We are to be His ambassador, His representative. They're to see Jesus in us. And as they do, uh, there's supposed to be a transformation, a power of God that is operating. And and even more than that, on a very practical level, um, God can do amazing things that you never thought of. Uh, You you may be a mechanic, but God can make you so much better of a mechanic. He knows mechanics. (coughs) He made the very elements. He's got all that figured out. Uh, Maybe you're a financial counselor. He can give you wisdom with each individual Word of knowledge, word of uh, wisdom, guidance and insight. I, I say that and I am reminded you may be a counselor. I cannot tell you how many times I am in a counseling situation and my conscious determination is, Lord, work through me, speak through me. I have training in counseling, but I'm not that smart. I don't know what's going on in your heart, really. And I, frankly, don't know when I've touched your heart. But God says things that come to me in the moment, that go right to the heart of the issue, that are surprising. Because He knows. And He can do something that we never dreamed possible. So every arena of life is to be under the control and dominion of the Holy Spirit. We are to be His His instruments to accomplish His purposes in every realm. We're to have that impact. And so, um, how is it that God begins to go about breaking us of self-reliance? And bringing us to that place of the fullness of His Spirit. I mentioned there are three overlapping areas that God will address in our lives in order to bring us to full dependency upon Him. And here's the thing, and here's why we can't judge one another. I may come back to that in a moment, but here's why we can't judge each other. The reason is simply simply that God tailor-makes the plan for every individual. And what he may deal with in your life, he may be dealing with an entirely different thing in someone else's life. Not everyone, we don't have a boilerplate. Okay, now you've entered the path of the Spirit. Let's see, this this is the sequence. It does not work that way. God knows exactly what you need to shape your life into dependency upon his power. And what you need will not be the same as what the person sitting next to you needs. God knows just how to address your life in order to bring it under His control. So I said there's three areas. The first area is full surrender to God in every area of our lives. That's the Romans 6 experience. 
the area of death to the self-life on the journey to the cross. That's the Romans 7 experience. And the area of freedom from law-keeping, which takes us into Romans 8 and many other passages of Scripture. Now, God will test... God will test our surrender. It's not because God needs to learn something. God knows whether you're really surrendered or not. But you need to learn something. I need to learn something. I need to face the things that I cherish and go through the process of determining Have I really given that to God? It has to be a settled issue. My surrender to God must be complete. And I want us to realize this morning that if you are not fully surrendered to God, you cannot move further down the path of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's one reason why it is a crisis. Because you not only have to come to the realization that you need his power, but you have to come to the realization that in order to have it, you must give up your own goals and desires and interest and focus. And I, I could spend another two or three sermons just on that subject. Because God wired you in a certain way. He gave you gifts and attributes and and natural abilities. But until they are sanctified, they're a hindrance. They're in the way. And so, we have examples in Scripture of people of faith who came to those crises One person that obviously comes to mind is Abraham. Now, we look back on the story of Abraham and we say, well, of course, God was not going to require human sacrifice. We know better than that. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham was challenged by God in a time uh, in the cultures around him when human sacrifice was not unusual. Or in some places, it was the norm. And so Abraham did not know that God was not going to require Isaac to be sacrificed. And when you look at Abraham's life, a number of things have already happened. One of the first ones was, he gets his promise from God and he waits for years and years and years and years and years and the promise doesn't seem to be coming through. And he thinks, well, maybe I need to help God out. And Sarah thinks, well, maybe we should help God out. And they do something that is is common in the culture. When a woman was barren, uh, <clears throat> she could take her servant or slave and offer that woman to her husband and then when it came time to, be, uh, to, to give birth to the child, the servant would sit across the knees of the wife and bear the child between the wife's legs. I hope I'm not being too blunt here. 
But anyway, that would be the occurrence. And legally, that child would belong to the husband and wife. It was a normal thing. And it's, well, let's just follow this course. That was not God's plan. God's plan was something beyond Abraham's ability, his natural ability, beyond Sarah's natural ability. It was to be a child of faith. And a lot of the trouble we have in the world today is due to Abraham's taking matters into his own hands because Ishmael uh, is ultimately the father of all those other Middle Eastern people that are not in favor of the Jews. And so you've got issues going on there that happen when we get the flesh involved. So, eventually, God honors His word to Abram, and when it's completely beyond the realm of possibility, God does a miracle. And Sarah becomes pregnant and gives birth to to, uh, Isaac. And Isaac is this amazing, wonderful son of promise. And uh, in their old age, they have this little boy growing up in their household that God has given them miraculously. And the day comes when God says to Abraham, who has been following the Lord? Mostly. Abraham, do you really love me? If you do, I want you to take Isaac, your son, your only son. And I want you to go to the place that I will show you, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. Can you imagine how Abraham felt? Can you imagine what a struggle that was for him? How do I offer this precious child... He's old enough now to walk and carry the wood, probably 12, 13 years old, I don't know. But he's old enough to participate in this experience. And on the way, he asked his dad this um, heart-rending question. Dad, we've got the fire and we've got the wood, but we don't have a sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? Somehow or another, Abraham must have had a conversation with Isaac because Isaac allowed him to bind him to the altar. And somewhere along the way, Abraham believed God that he would raise Isaac from the dead, if necessary, to honor his word. I mean, Abraham sold out. It was all God, none of him. And you know how that story turns out. Just as he raises the knife to slay his son and light the fire, an angel stops him. And there in the thicket, a ram is caught. And that one is the lamb that God provides as a substitute. There's so much going on there. But... That was a test, huge test, 
Fast forward a couple of generations, Jacob. Jacob is born to Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, his name means swindler, one who trips by the heel, you know. Uh, he's a swindler. And God has promised, made promises to him. Well, promises to Isaac and Rebekah. The eldest will serve the younger. Now, how do you figure that out when they're twins born at the same time? Well, they're not born at the same time. One is born first, followed by the other. And Esau was born first, and then Jacob was born. And he comes out hanging onto Esau's heel, which is how he got his name. But it was actually prophetic, because he spent the rest of his life almost hanging on to somebody's heel. And he's born, and I know that Rebecca began to tell him stories. He and Rebecca were in collusion, and Esau and Isaac were in collusion. They had one of those wonderful family dynamics that makes for trouble in every situation. And um, Jacob knew that it was his destiny to really be the inheritor of the family. So what did he do? He goes to set about accomplishing it himself. And one day Esau's been out hunting and Isaac is uh, ill and uh, weak and he wants Esau to go hunt and prepare him a savory dish. And Esau comes in from the hunt famished. And you know what Jacob does? You know, Jacob's cooking this wonderful aromatic stew. And uh, Esau says, ah, I've got to have some of that stew. And Jacob says, yeah? How badly do you want it? I'm starving! I'm starving! Well, then, I tell you what. You give me your birthright. I'll give you my stew. What a lousy trade. But Esau, being the man that he was, well, what good is my birthright if I die here? Now, I don't think Esau was even close to death, but he makes the swap, and then from that day forward, he resents and hates Jacob for swindling him. To the point that, Rebecca finally tells Jacob, Jacob, you, you need to get out of Dodge because your brother is just fed up with you and your life is really at risk. So I want you to go back uh, to my family and go back to Laban and uh, go back to that area and, and find a wife. And, you know, and when it's safe, you can come home again. And so Jacob goes uh, to Laban's household. And you know how that story turns out. Jacob, who's the master crafty one, uh, gets swindled. I'm always uh, curious as to how that happened. But uh, he wakes up after the marriage with the wrong woman. His father-in-law has uh, passed off the ugly one to him. And uh, the love of his life is still single, and that's not who the marriage was consummated with. And so uh, he says, well, I, I worked seven years for this one. I'll work another seven years for 
uh, the other, and so he does that, and then he needs to build his uh, wealth up, and so, um, you know, he makes some deals with his father-in-law, and every time he makes a deal, uh, his father-in-law changes the terms, because Jacob has figured out, uh, who was it, was it Mendel that <clears throat> did the peas? Yeah. Yes. He's the one that came up with the uh, original idea of selective breeding. And, and uh, well, no, he didn't. I think Jacob did. I'm not quite sure how that happened. But Jacob had some insight uh, into something that was going on. And it's a little weird when you read it. But um, Jacob figured out no matter what his father-in-law said, he could end up with the cream of the crop in the birthing of, of the sheep and goats and whatever. And so... Eventually, he ends up with this massive herd, and his father-in-law's is getting smaller and smaller. And uh, finally, he has to leave that place because he swindled his father-in-law out of everything. I mean, he's robbing him blind. And he's on his way back now to his home country, and he doesn't know what kind of reception he's going to get with Esau. I mean, he's got this big family now. He's got uh, 12 kids. He's got two wives and two concubines and a bunch of servants and, and all of these animals. And he's on his way back. And he doesn't know but what Esau's just going to kill him the minute he sees him. And all of this is building up in his heart. He has skated by the skin of his teeth throughout his whole life swindling people now he's coming as we say the chickens are coming home to roost and he's coming to the end of it and as he gets to the brook jabok he sends everybody ahead of him and he stays back and somewhere in the night this person shows up and they have a wrestling match and in the course of wrestling, Jacob perceives that he's struggling with God. And he will not let God go. And the angel of the Lord says, let me go, let me go. And he says, no. This is Jacob's way of saying, I have to have you. I have to have you. I'm at the end. I have to have you. And God touches him in the thigh, and his thigh is put out of joint, and he goes down. And he says, because you have prevailed, I will bless you. No longer will your name be called Swindler. You will from henceforth be Israel, Prince with God. Jacob came to the end of himself at Jabbok. And he met God in a new way. And his thigh was put out of socket as a permanent limp to remind him of his weakness and of his need for God. Friends, God will test our mettle. He will test our resolve. He will bring us to full surrender. Peter, you remember him saying, Lord... I'll never deny you. I'll die before I deny you. Peter's so full of commitment and devotion. And yet, 
Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, I tell you what, you don't know yourself. (coughs) He said, I have prayed for you. Satan wants to destroy you, to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you. And when you've turned, I want you to strengthen your brothers. When you've turned. But you should know that before the cock crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. You're not as strong as you think. You don't have the power you think. You're going to fail miserably. And fail he did. And as he denied Jesus for the third time, you you know the scripture says, Jesus just turned and looked at him. Don't you know that was a withering look? Don't you know Peter just shrank within himself? He wept. He hid himself. He was broken. He had lost all confidence in himself. He had failed miserably. And that's precisely where he needed to be. When you've turned, strengthen your brothers. God tests him after the resurrection. They're on the seashore. Jesus has prepared a breakfast of fish and called them in. And Peter's recognizes the Lord and he's embarrassed. He's he's can't go anywhere. <laughs> and they come in to the shore and eventually Jesus has a conversation with him. It goes like this. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Peter did not want to bring that up. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I like you. You know I'm fond of you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I'm fond of you. I like you. Peter, do you even like me? Oh, it hurt. Lord, you know. You know that I like you. But I'm not going to say ever again how much I love you and what I'd be willing to do for you. And Jesus says to him, because Peter asks a question, you know, he wants to divert. Look, Look at John over there. And Jesus says, Peter, don't worry about John. If John tarries till I come, that's not any of your business. But you, one day, will be taken where you don't want to go. And you will die, essence in essence, in a way that you do not want to die. And you will give yourself for me. When you've turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter could not be used until he was broken. Paul stood and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. He watched Stephen looking up into heaven with this radiant glow upon his person as the rocks and stones were pummeling against him. And Stephen is seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and he's being welcomed into his presence and Paul is watching this. And he's been persecuting the believers and he he keeps thinking to himself, what manner of people are these? 
And he goes on from town to town arresting people. And he encounters more like Stephen. Who are willing to give their lives in their love for Jesus. And it's beginning to bother him. His conscience is under a conscience is under attack and he begins to struggle and and at night he's troubled by this i know this because the scripture says it's hard for you to kick against the goads you're you're being prickled you're being poked in ways that are uncomfortable And one day he's on the road to Damascus to arrest more Christians. And a blinding light strikes him and he falls to the ground unable to see. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Peter says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. And Paul says, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? He has come face to face with Jesus. And he has surrendered to his lordship. That's a time when conversion and the Commitment occur at the same time, and Paul was transformed dramatically from that day forward. Friends, God wants to know, are you willing to give up anything to follow him? Are you willing to surrender without reservation? Are you so hungry for his spirit? That nothing is more important to you. It may be a career. It may be your security. It may be the respect that you have earned in the community or within your company. Whatever it is, whatever significant to you, it may be your wife or your husband, it may be your children that are more important to you than God. And God will ask you, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? That, that's the crisis. And we have got to come to that moment and say, Lord... <laughs> I do love you. And I'm ready to give it all up. I want to know you. Obviously, I'm going to save the other two points for next week. But let me just say in closing that One of the reasons that we do not see the power of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives and in our church, and you may disagree with me, but in terms of whether or not the power is present, I know God does some things for us. Obviously, there's some amazing things God has done. But you know what? It doesn't exactly look like the book of Acts. And if you wonder why it doesn't, could it be because we have not fully surrendered? Because he is not more important than anything else on the planet. Because he is not supreme in our lives and in our love. Until we are willing to, to give him our all, he is not able to take over and do as he pleases. He is limited by our other affections. And if I may remind you of one of the commandments, thou shalt love the Lord Thy God, with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. And Him only shall you serve. That to love anything more than God is to be an idolater. And when you're worshiping idols, it's hard to have the fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit because he's offended by that. Are we at a place in our lives, yours and mine? And maybe you need to revisit that altar. Maybe you need to go back and say, Lord, I know I gave it to you at one time, but time has passed and I've kind of fallen back into some habits. I need to renew that covenant with you. I need to get it straight again. Will you take a moment this morning let the Holy Spirit speak to you? And if we're holding out on God, give Him the opportunity to deal with us.